there's a vast amount of confusion out there. Um, we actually, among many hats I, too many hats I wear, I work with an organization in Bristol called Future Leap, which basically has a, a hub that brings all the different strands of sustainability into one place, domestic and business and shared workspace and events and consultancy. So I'm one of the Calvin consultants there. And that there's a synergistic relationship between Future Leap and Carbon Lens, the company I and two other guys, um, soon to be three other guys, work with. We do quite a lot of training, but you get people coming in just obviously very bemused. So we run um, Davina, who organizes the events, very neat hybrid events um, online and in person in the uh, event space, just on uh, carbon jargon. So you just run through the big terms, you know, footprint, how you work out a footprint, what neutrality is and isn't, whether neutrality will get you to net zero, which it won't. It's a way of sidestepping the big issues, what net zero actually means, and then what on earth you do about it. How do you reduce your footprint, which is what they really want to know. And of course, unfortunately, this whole slightly chaotic, very new horizon is a huge opportunity for greenwash. So people will claim nice eco this, green that. Um, so this is where you get, you know, drive carbon neutral, big oil uh, company, fly carbon neutral, completely impossible. An electric airplane might get you to Scotland. It won't get you across an ocean. And the so the aviation industry, one of the carbon lens uh, directors is from the aviation industry. So he's tracking this quite closely. They haven't got the technology. It's asking, it's really pushing the limit of what's technically possible. So you try to unpick the truth from the greenwash is very, very confusing. I think confusion is a route to inaction and that's very dangerous. Um, so <laughs> our humble mission in the middle of all this, it sounds ridiculously grandiose to say it like this, but somebody's got to do it um, in every point, you know, locally, local activity. Um, somebody has got to make it much more transparent. So you unpick the confusion, you explain very simply um, what the terms are and then you give examples and stories are unbelievably powerful because stories of a business that you can identify with we did something that worked now we finally got a foothold in some sort of carbon reduction plan so it's it is chaotic but i um, mean my background is neuroscience so i'm used to chaos this doesn't bother me <laughs> and so the organizations that prosper that's why i like working with future league um, I warn everybody, they're all quite young. Uh, I'm sort of granddad. Um, if you like being perpetually out of your depth because things are changing around you, even as you carry something out, if you love the excitement and the buzz from that, that, that you can never be completely sure what's going to happen, but you'll cope with it somehow, you'll love it. But if, uh, if you like predictability, then you're going to hate the whole thing. But the, it, it, there's nothing predictable in it unless you go right to the heart of it and look at the examples of what people have done that have worked. But of course, the context is changing as well. So um, everything is moving, mm. which I just love it. It's incredibly yeah. exciting. Interesting. And, and to be honest, I think, you know, th this is episode 300 of the Neil Wilkins podcast. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a absolute, well, thank you, but um, congratulations for you, actually, for being here at this kind of poignant moment, I guess, of hopefully 
it's a turning point because I mean I don't know about you Simon but um, and by the way anybody watching listening to this um, we're talking with um, Simon Forsyth who is a neurobiologist um, but also system developer at Carbon Lens as he uh, sort of eloquently uh, just described a little bit earlier but I thought I'd put that placeholder there um, so that we know who we're talking to and we'll explain a little bit more about Carbon Lens um, in a while. Point out in the interest of clarity, I haven't been a neurobiologist for an awfully long time. There was no funding in the 80s. So I went through AI and got into environmental and then carbon management. So the chaos, see? Yeah, I was, I was going to sort of really begin with that, I think, just in terms of kind of the journey, because I think people are always very interested um, in kind of, yeah, but how did you get into this? You know, chaos, it feels, you know, this kind of embracing constant change. Why would you do that? Why would you go there? What what is the backstory for, for for Simon? Why did you kind of or do you do you know how you kind of arrived at this point? It's all um, happenstance, which is why I just I, I accept things are chaotic because it's just how everything has happened in my career. It just seems to be it's just me. It's just I don't know. It wasn't exactly planned. Um, neuroscience was because I just thought what of all the things to study. You know, in your skull is the most complex matter in the known universe. And somehow there's the inner world that we perceive and there's the what we think is the outer world. But we don't know directly because we have to construct it in this complex matter. And I thought, I thought, wow, philosophically, scientifically. So I did a degree in that um, at Sussex. Um, loved it. Um, and then I worked for a year in the publishers um, and then in London, and discovered if you've been working, you could get um, a full grant to do a PhD. And I, though I'd sworn I wouldn't ever go back to a educational institution, you know, the institution, I thought, no, I really want to pursue this. So I did a PhD in basically cortical structures, how um, the, the almost crystalline structure in, a, in the cerebral cortex or the cerebellum does this myriad of different, very complex tasks and pulls order out of the chaos. So fascinating, which is great. Very, very interesting. Um, got me into computer modeling and so forth. Um, no funding, mid eighties, nobody was interested in pure research. But one of my colleagues at um, Sheffield, where I'd done the PhD, had just got a job with British Telecom, um, who was starting an artificial intelligence group. And he said, why don't you apply? I said, I don't know anything about artificial intelligence. So well, you've been using the um, AI vision groups computer. I was allowed to use it overnight when nobody else was using it to do brain models. I was modeling cortical structures and electrosensation in fish, which is yeah, another story. You, so just that's fine. That's close enough. So I went for an interview and got offered a job working in AI about which I knew absolutely nothing. AI in the 80s was very different from what it is now. It was very fringe, very niche. Um, and it was done, it was handcrafted. So you'd interview an expert to produce an expert system where you would codify their specific, domain-specific specialist knowledge into a set of rules, which are known as a production system, because you would produce a solution to a problem from looking through this set of rules, which is not how it's done now. That's another, that's another talk altogether. Did that for a while. And then HP, Hewlett-Packard, were setting up a very large AI group. This was 85. And would, they wanted to recruit. They had a target to recruit at least 200 AI researchers. Uh, so the whole group, I can probably tell the story now without annoying BT too much. The entire AI group, there were only five of us, applied and we got taken on. So suddenly I was part of this American multinational 
which is actually a really nice culture in many ways. Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, by the way, started Silicon Valley in Dave Packard's garage in 1938 or nine. They were Stanford graduates who just decided at their professor's suggestion to start a business. So there's, it's a very, if we don't know how to do it, we'll just work it out, crash into it, see what happens. So they sort of embraced the technical chaos. It was part of the corporate culture. Part of the culture, I was in the research labs, supposedly researching, well, I was researching artificial intelligence, sort of. Um, well, no, no, we were. We were really doing that uh, prologue, logic programming to do all sorts of things. But we were allowed 10% of our time, half a day a week, to do whatever the hell we liked, um, which is very prescient. The, the theory being management theory. I don't know much about management theory, but you know, little snippets. You hire clever people, motivated people. So don't try and don't contain them too much. If they've got an idea that really gives them a buzz, just let them run with it because something may come out of it. Google, by the way, give their staff 20% of their time one day a week to do whatever they think might be interesting. And I believe Google Maps and um, Google Translate, I think, came out of a particular, you know, one or two employees who had a particular idea. So anyway, 10% of your time, you could do whatever you wanted. So um, a colleague of mine, who's now a professor at the University of Bristol, um, <clears throat> had noticed that all the um, paper from a hundred and odd networked laser jets, Hewlett Packard, so we had a lot of printers in the eighties, um, it was all just going into the waste. And he thought that's just not right. So rather than being, being an academic, his dad's a professor as well. Um, he just phoned Friends of the Earth direct and said, look, is there any way of getting this recycled? Friends of the Earth in Bristol had just spun off a company specifically for uh, business waste recycling is off saver. So they said, yeah, you could be our first big client. So without telling the management, Friends of the Earth turned up once a week and took away the all the waste paper. So it got recycled rather than going into landfill. Uh, and he asked people to help. So I just became the owner of a flip top bin next to a printer. And I tipped it into the big bin in the print room once a week or whenever it was full. And then it went off and got recycled. Then a few months later, Chris was away. Um, so I was sort of notionally in charge of things. Um, there was an email from the general manager um, who said, I think we should be doing some recycling. This was early 1990. So there was a lot of concern. Those of you who are old enough will remember. Um, there were a lot of seal deaths in the North Sea. Britain was being seen as the dirty man of Europe because of acid rain that was blowing over to Germany and Scandinavia from power stations. Uh, there was a lot of environmental concern. The hole in the ozone layer had been uncovered by the British Antarctic Survey, as it happened. Um, there's an interesting story behind that, why they discovered it, not the Americans. That's another story. So there was a lot of environmental concern, and the general manager felt we ought to be doing something. So I emailed him back. and said, well, actually, we, we've been paper recycling since since last summer and I got I got an email see me I thought oh no this is being summoned to the headmaster's study I'm going to get a massive bollocking now for not involving the management but I was thinking British management he was thinking California management different so in fact it was the facilities manager I was summoned to see and instead of giving me a bollocking he gave me a budget he said this is great that you've done this um, what else can we do so write me a plan of what we can do and get as many people involved as you could. So I went away and this is out of the blue and thought, right, well, what are the areas we can look at? So 
we set up employee teams looking at waste, which we more or less had the beginnings of um, uh, chemicals, which were pretty well, well, very tightly managed for health and safety, but we looked at the environmental side of it as well. We were essentially picking up what was already there. Transport, this is the Bristol North Fringe, so we were beginning to generate an awful lot of traffic. Uh, the grounds, so that was basically ecology, because it was on an old, the Hewlett Packard site was on 140 acres of old farmland. Um, so we looked at these different, uh, and energy is the other big one. A, a lot of, well, there was a lot going on with energy in terms of the, it was well managed, but nobody was really asking the environmental, certainly not at that stage, the carbon question about energy use and how much we need to use. So we just group, we got, just sent a general email out. Um, got groups of employees together for each of these environmental action group, we call them EAGs, looking at transport, energy, waste, the grounds, and chemicals and or pollution to see what we could do from ground level up. And it all worked fine. So I, for some accidental reason, I was in charge of it. And then after about five years, um, let's just say, didn't do quite as well as we possibly should have done um, in a, a big environmental audit, or audit uh, environment, health and safety audit, mostly on the environmental element, because um, th there was a health and safety guy in charge who just wasn't particularly interested and didn't really. It's quite a different culture, health and safety, because it's very, um, very well defined, whereas environment, especially back then, there was hardly anything written. Um, you were making it up as you went along. So the, the two cultures were really quite different. And he hadn't really taped down the environmental bit. So I got a job offer. So, and they said, could you write a job description? So I had to write my own job description. And then they gave me a really hard interview. And I thought, you're not going to give me the job, are you? Yeah, but actually they did. So suddenly I shifted sideways. See what I mean about chaos? Suddenly I was the environmental specialist expected to know about all of this stuff. Of course I didn't, I knew bits. I'd done lots of reading. Um, so I'd suddenly shifted careers completely. Um, and of course I had to move then out of the research labs into the factory. It was a factory making digital audio tape, um, which turned over just short of a billion dollars just from that one site by the late 90s, I think it was 98, 99 financial year. So it's pretty successful business. And I was the environmental lead. A part of the reporting for that was um, carbon. Uh, it didn't need to be. Uh, it just seemed like an obvious thing to work out because you could, but only very partial. Uh, so just for the, um, uh, mostly for energy, uh, we didn't really have the means to calculate carbon for most things because the greenhouse gas protocol wasn't put together until the late 90s. It was published in 2001. So it wasn't really... Um, it wasn't something that was easy to manage, but because you could work out at least from energy, uh, I just included it in and just started doing environmental reports, piece of software to pull the numbers together. Um, originally written in Lotus 123, but Lotus was then bought by IBM, so I wasn't then allowed to use it because IBM were a major competitor. So that shifted it across to Excel, which I still use actually. Surprising how much you can do in Excel. So that got me into producing carbon tracking software very, very early on. Um, and I left HP in 2000. Um, I'd been mostly in charge of the ISO 14001 system, but then manufacturing was moving offshore, uh, which was a bit of a, that was a bit sad because the idea of making it here in England and selling it to the world, um, historical echoes, it's quite a nice idea, 
um, especially if it's something nobody else can really make, but it was too expensive to manufacture in the UK. So that was moved offshore. Didn't need a 14,001 system on the site. So I was told I would always have a job, but it wouldn't necessarily be environmental. And I thought it's probably time to move. So I went and worked. I won't give you all the detail for various, usually charities, essentially working with small businesses, much smaller, not corporate level, because there's very little support for smaller businesses. There's a very, very little support for them now. But um, um, the gist there, well, well, let's just say there was funding made available, different age, through landfill tax, thing called the BREW program, Business Resource Efficiency for Waste. Um, there was funding if you organized and ran a resource efficiency club, as it was then known. This is about 2004 to 2008. So I wrote bids and got um, and worked with colleagues um, to run a resource efficiency club. But part of the reporting, interestingly, you had to report. So, so it's a group of businesses. You get them together, ideally in on a business site. So people are much more business people are much keener to go and visit another site another business because they can have a look around and talk to them and bounce ideas so we discovered that's a very cheap way to get a good venue and then of course you do a site tour so um, people love describing what they've done and how they've done it but everybody else it's another group of businesses it's non-competitive stuff so they love sharing the ideas so these are quite successful but we had to report um and we're talking about a group um of uh, I ended up running three. Again, there was chaos in this. The third one was accidental because the Environment Agency had funds left over. So I was asked to work on a whole trading estate in South Bristol. And we put that together in less than a month. Um, but they were all doing more or less the same thing, gathering the information about everything they consumed. And then we were getting businesses to share ideas about how you reduce your consumption, which cuts your cost. So it's three Cs, consumption, cost, carbon. If you reduce your consumption, you're reducing your cost base, which is actually increasing your profitability because your, your cost of producing whatever you sell, good service, whatever, has gone down because you're consuming less. Therefore, there's more left over as profit margin. So it, it does make business sense, but it was in those days, it was very marginal. But I'd learned by then, track the carbon as well. And we had to report cost saving, but also carbon saving. So the carbon reporting bit suddenly became center stage. Uh, and then when all of that funding stopped, I gave, somebody asked me, um, somebody I used to work with at a charity in Bath, now sadly long gone, involved. She said, why can't you do all this in one place? Because you're writing a report in one, you know, usually in Microsoft Word, you're doing the tracking in something else, um, Excel usually, and you're doing accessory bits. Can't you do all of this? In, and then you're giving them an action plan, which is a separate document of things they can do based on what they told you. Can you not do all this in one piece of software and just simplify? Oh, I don't know. Is it possible to do that in Excel? Um, it turns out, so I gave myself, I think it was April 2008. I thought, right, I'm just going to see if we can actually do the data gathering, the carbon calculation, the reporting, and the action plan all in one place. It turns out you can. So uh, I've been tweaking that ever since. Um, it's called the data collator because all it does is collate the data but it's automatically working out the carbon in the background because we now know we have mechanisms with the greenhouse gas protocol, uh, protocols, um, procedures, methods for calculating the carbon that's emitted. 
um, for every litre of fuel you burn or mile you travel in a small vehicle or an HGV, depends on the vehicle size, every kilowatt hour of electricity, gas, fuel oil, every tonne of fuel oil if you need to, or tonne of wood, you can work out how much carbon has been emitted. And because the greenhouse gas protocol gives you a structure, you can say as a scope one, stuff you control directly, so like vehicle fuel, gas oil, you know, uh, fuel oil, you burn directly, that, that's scope one. Electricity, you're not usually generating it, though you might be if you've got photovoltaics on the roof, uh, but you're influencing because you choose from whom you buy it. So that's scope two. And then scope three is everything else. Um, but because it's, don't worry about the detail, come to one of the carbon jargon events and we'll go through the detail. Because it's structured, we can automate all the calculation. So calculating the carbon isn't difficult. Well, it's fiddly, but it doesn't have to be a, a, um, a task every time because it's done automatically by, by the programming, by the machine. The difficult bit is gathering the raw data about everything you've consumed. And that's the model. So that sort of evolved out of the resource efficiency clubs. And then um, that's the model we still use, but we, uh, too much detail. Spun off a company. Uh, I operated it as three C's for a while and then got together with another friend, uh, colleague whom I'd met earlier and we formed Carbon Lens, just the two of us. And then his brother, who's the aviation industry, Airbus and General Electric, he joined. Um, and the three of us, um, we're all my sort of age. So it's a sort of, it's a bit like last of the summer wine does carbon sometimes. I see us at meetings and I think, <laughs> however, the two of them bring enormous um, industrial experience. You know, you've got Martin comes in from aviation. Richard used to, he was production manager at RS Racing Sailboat. So they, they it, it's manufacturing a world-class, Olympic-class product. So he, he's very good on the process stuff and he's very good on the formal management system, ISO anything. He integrates them all, 27,000 for security, 9,000 for quality, 14,001 for um, 14,000 series for environmental. Um, he can do all of that stuff. Uh, frankly, I get a bit bored with all the paperwork. I'm much more interested in the performance stuff. So, and of course I come in from electronics. So you bring a lot of industrial background together and then we work with all sorts of businesses, you know, come in, they have a particular problem. Um, so that's how, <laughs> by a series of random stages and um, conversations, communications, friendships, um, casual references, interesting conversations, that's how it's all sort of formed itself up. So it is chaotic. But I can tell you, this is what is happening inside your skull the, all the time chaos of everything you're perceiving is it's complete mess and somehow what we're able to do is spot the patterns pull the shapes out of the chaos and that becomes what we perceive as reality so i i apply that model to um to organizations you see organizations that you know embrace the chaos structure will come out of it and the structure is surprisingly stable uh, but also you've got to do that with the carbon the data looks chaotic and it is but there's a there are structures in it. So one of the things we do in with the software that I've been working on recently is visualizing the patterns that are coming out. Like if I've got, um, I need to do some emails before too long. Um, we've got training events on Monday and Tuesday, working with um, um, 
forges, um, metal forming uh, companies. This is a project run through the University of Birmingham um, on how they reduce their carbon, basically carbon reduction plan, because they're very they're very heavy energy users because they have to melt or, or metal to the point where they can make it into a specific item. How can we reduce our carbon footprint? They ask, very good question. So we will specialize on that. So you've got all of this going on from, and what we've done is they have given us a whole load of data. Martin's put together a very neat tool, the C-estimator that from no more than a dozen or so, Sorry, this is, um, that's Little Ben, which is a, a grandmother clock, 100 years old, I think this year. Um, but it has a very, very big bomb, which seems to carry extremely well. So uh, we'll know when it's 10 o'clock. Um, what they've done, these companies, there's, there's eight of them, they've put about a dozen headline consumption numbers into the C-estimator. It's produced a footprint and a load of graphics about how much carbon they're in emitting from which bits of their business and what we'll be doing on monday is going through okay what are the big generators in your business carbon generators what measures are possible and looking at other lots of other businesses what have people tried what's worked to reduce your carbon that becomes a carbon reduction plan and when you project that out over next year the year after 10 years 2040 that's your net zero plan you're aiming to get your total emissions down to less than 10 percent of what they currently are year by year successive year by year improvements stepping down and we've had clients carbon lenses had clients who um there's one client in particular it got business specifically because they have a carbon reduction plan and this is tens of millions of pounds worth of business it's a government contract government now stipulate uk government bless them i don't say that very often uh actually stipulates that if you're bidding for more than, I think it's, uh, they've bumped it up, I think it's 5 million now. Uh, no, no, no it's I think it's less, I think it's more than a million. Uh, if you're bidding for a, a, con a government contract, I think it's more than a million. Wales is more than a million. Uh, you have to have a, um, a net zero plan. And of course, we get phone calls. We need a net zero plan. What is one of those? Can you do us one by Monday? Well, no, you've got to rethink pretty well all your processes in order to put a coherent one together. But it's, it's gone from a marginal nice to have, and it's become a pretty central um, business, well, business essential, the clue is in the name. You need to have this. And we now have, although don't get your hopes up too far, we now have an energy security and net zero department. I just hope somebody in there understands what net zero means. Otherwise, come to a seminar. We run them periodically. Anyway, he said that was arrogant, but anyway. No, it's, it's really interesting because for me, the, the, the missing link, I think for lots of people, and I'm, I'm sure people listening to this are fascinated by the journey, um, but the, the one key thing for me that was the missing link but seems to be now with <coughs> Carbon Lens, and I'm sure others are available, but we're talking here about Carbon oh, Lens, there's a lot. is, is the, the whole kind of concept of having a playbook. So actually having something mm. you can physically use as, as you've eloquently described, to kind of talk and 
collaborate your way through that chaos because I think, as, as you described right at the outset there, that there's a lot of people knowing it's the thing to do. You, you know you have to do it. You know it's the right stuff to be involved in, but it is that question of how. And I think with something like this, there's a playbook available now. There are experts available who can guide you and talk you through it. This kind of still feels like new ground. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk about the broader sustainability kind of sector now, because it is a sector providing business support and specialist services, it feels like it is still kind of a, yeah, just an emerging sector, really. And it still feels very early in the game, despite, you know, obviously this, obviously for you, having been for decades. Yeah, well, (laughs) as you may have inferred from what I've said, I have this rather uncomfortable habit of arriving about 20 to 30 years early in an area. Because neuroscience, where people go, what's that? So somebody once thought it was neuroscience, studying the science that's going on in Europe. Right. Now it's really trendy. You say this to a 20-something, they go, wow, really? You studied that? AI, similarly. Although it's not AI like we did. It's machine learning. Um, I try to persuade them to, to look at connection machines, neural nets, you know, brain-modeled AI. But nobody in the 80s was interested. It was all formal logic. And so, so I always arrive too early. Um, uh, it's just chaos again. But uh, so it is very new. I mean, there, there's a group of... Like, some, some of my colleagues get, friends and colleagues get slightly peeved with me because I talk, I talk about this as the stubborn old greens because we've been doing this for decades. It was just what we call in Yorkshire sheer, sheer badness, sheer cussedness. You know, nope, this is the right thing to do. I'm going to do this. You know that. Um, and the, there are a lot of them. And you say, come on, come on. This is one. It's a little, it's a point that's popped up that's assembled itself, self-assembling systems, chaos, all linked. Tell them biologists, can't you? There are lots of small groups. There's a, there's a real hub down in Exeter, for example. People I work, I did a lot of work down there and, and Devon. Uh, York, Sheffield, all over. Our best, honestly, our best hope for dealing with the climate crisis is that, I actually say this as a, in, the, in the software, um, just in a, in a note. The best hope is that there are little groups of people who said, right, Somebody's got to do this. Let's just work out what we do and just get on with it. That there are thousands of them dotted all over the world. And there are and the reason, the reason I, I love working with the Future Leap people who are mostly youngsters is that you see a whole concentration of them. And there's a shared workspace as part of that. Um, so they're all sustainability facing businesses. They're not all tiny, but it's a real mix. Um, and it is all new. I mean, there's, there's Reef Watch, you, Reef Conservation Worldwide. They, they're, head, they're headquartered there. They're, they're based there. It's a small, basically a small charity. The software people who've spun off, I, I actually work with, um, working out spherics, working out um, your carbon from your cloud accountancy data. I got involved. I, I can't believe that's really possible. But if it is, it's brilliant. So I work with them. They've now been bought up by their part of um, Sage, because Sage now, who are headquartered in Newcastle, but world, you know, global, they know this needs to be part of what they offer. So something started from an idea in the minds of two or three people, formed an organization, they were very canny how they did it, a lot of business experiments, pulled a lot of people in and then become part of a multinational. Think, oh, okay, that's an interesting model. So there's a sea change. There's a real, it's what we were talking about. Uh, Neil and I met um, at a Future Leap event like this uh, in a, a breakout 
group um, online and we just got chatting. So that's that's how I got asked to come and do this. It, there's an awful lot more than you can see happening out there. And that's the only thing, that and the people I meet involved in this, the only things that keep me optimistic. Because if you just look at the science, it's terrifying. You know, what's, what's on our way is really frightening. But what's going on in response to that is really inspiring. Um, how it's going to play out, I have no idea. Um, it's a race against time now. Can this change happen fast enough for us to really adapt? Because what you see is that the established interests, they will put up tokens, you know, net carbon neutral. Great token. What's it mean? Fly carbon neutral. No, it's not possible. Drive carbon neutral. That was shell. Go on. Say it. Right intent, but very badly. And yet, each of those organizations will find within them, there are groups of employees who are going, actually, look, there's another, there's another way of doing this. So there's a real, this is kind of what we're talking about, Neil, there's a real cultural, psychological, emotional revolution going on below the surface. Um, the interesting echo is um, that was more or less how the Industrial Revolution happened 300 years ago. It was people who weren't part of the system because they were non-conformists, they weren't Church of England. They said they couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, couldn't go to university in England. So they formed their own colleges, the dissenting academies. And instead of learning classics, their kids learned metallurgy and geology and the cutting edge, you know, talking mid, late 18th century, cutting edge science. Oxygen was just being discovered. Well, what is it exactly? Phlogiston, what is fire? They were asking these questions, but they were taught this stuff and they went on and formed industrial businesses. And that literally changed the world. It also, it also propelled us into the problems we've got now. But nonetheless, it's, it's the, the shape of the change, the pattern of the change. It was chaotic, but in the chaos, there is structure. It's, you know, it's self-assembling structure. Um, and that, it, it's emergence. Um, the idea that you can put all, a lot of pieces together. You might understand the individual pieces, but when you put them together and they interact freely, structures begin to emerge that you wouldn't expect. You can't actually explain. Um, and that's a really remarkable thing. But the whole of biology, you know, your body consists of trillions of, of basically microbes who decided that they can interoperate and they'll, they'll all do better by operating as an organism rather than as a trillion individual microbes. It's astonishing. It's, it's, I mean, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. Your blood, your skin, your kidneys, your heart, your liver, your brain, they're all made of these things that used to, even the individual cells used to be two separate organisms. The bit, the mitochondrion that gives you all the energy was a free living creature, whatever it was, two and a bit billion years ago, that got eaten up by a thing that would, phagocytose, it would envelop stuff and then digest it. But when they, at some point, this little mitochondrion creature was being fed lots of food that it could eat inside this other organism. And the, the other phagocytosing organism the, the, the realized that it had this energy source inside it. So all you got to do is keep feeding it and it gives you energy. And the energy is always going, I just sit here quietly and I just keep getting fed and I can just do my thing symbiosis suddenly you've got the modern cell 
something similar happened with chloroplasts in plants. So you, you've got this self-assembly. It looks random, but what emerges from it is different. And that changes everything. So it's it's not strange. It's actually it's it's a it is normal. This this love of chaos. So it's why it doesn't bother me. You know, the issue now is can we change fast enough to not conduct our own suicide? Which is that's the track we're on. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things I was just going to ask you actually, because you know we're talking billions of years in terms of evolution and. Yeah you know, revolution, I guess, in some cases, but the, the time was kind of on our and our predecessors' um, sort of favour, really. I mean, it was on our side. Whereas now working to what is a very potentially very, very limited time scale. I mean, you described there about kind of you know, below the surface, there's a lot of support. How, how do you see this becoming a, a more acceptable thing business-wide? So say for, for the average medium-sized business where you have a few evangelists, but they're kind of battling against, you know, closed doors and there's a little bit of a sort of, you know, feeling of, yeah, we probably should be doing something, but it's a should, not must. And mm. there's still this kind of sort of resistance because oh, we're a little bit too busy. How, yeah. how do you see the, these kind of individuals who really want to kind of embrace this and, you know, drive change in their organizations? Is, is it about commercializing this? Because you, you talked a little bit earlier about there's a commercial value in being more carbon friendly because there's a process improvement and efficiency. So clearly there's a financial value. Do, do you see that as the, the route into this? It, it, yes, in, indirectly, I think it is because you're enthusiastic within your organisation. Oh, yeah, you're very... Samantha and, and Eric over there, they're very green. And they would have been tolerant. Okay, that's fine. As long as it doesn't get in the way of your work, you want to set up some office paper recycling, see where everybody starts. That's fine, but just don't let it get in the way of you doing your job, which, you know, that's the world 10 years ago, probably the world as it is now in many organisations. There's a shift going on. There was, a, there was a significant inflection point, 2019, because it started to become obvious to anybody who was running a business, actually having a few people involved who understand this stuff um, is quite useful because we're being asked questions now as part of supplier qualification questionnaires. Um, do you have an environmental policy? When the 90s, it was, do you have an environmental policy? You just have to say yes, tick the box, that's fine, you're in. Then it was, do you have, are you moving towards early 90s? Do you have, are you moving towards um, an environmental management system, brackets, for example, ISO 14001, close brackets, and you could just say yes. And it was okay. And then it was, um, okay, send, you had to send some, just some um, detail of what your management system was. So just saying you had one. So you get this, you see this, this set of, it's, it's like, um, uh, not a, I suppose it's crochet. Moving towards a crescendo, what's the musical term? Arpeggio? Whatever it is. I've got lots of friends who, who know lots about music. Um, it's quite funny. They all sing with the Bristol Choral Society, whereas my background in music was my brother's punk rock band, The Possessed, but it's slightly different. So I can't remember the musical terms. But you, you get this ascent of um, climbing a scale of environmental tick boxes, just as part of being an acceptable 
um, supplier. So this has now got to the point, the one I alluded to earlier, that for government contracts, you have got to have above a certain size. But I mean, UK, UK government contracts are usually above several million dollars, so it, it, several million pounds. So it often does, uh, you know, it, it's going to apply to most. A lot of local authorities, by the way, have been putting um, criteria like this in place for some of them for decades. But they be exactly your point. They might they they could see where it was going, but they were very strictured, very very constricted by um, what was acceptable within their normal business practice as a local authority in say the late nineties or the early noughties. That is shifting. Um, it is a question of pace, but that, that's that was the inflection point in twenty nineteen. The pace suddenly accelerated to the point where you really need to have somebody in your organization who's on top of this, or you hire somebody in. In health and safety, uh, a lot of organizations, they, you know, small and medium-sized businesses, they can't really afford to pay somebody full-time to be a health, a health and safety specialist, but the health and safety regulations are so demanding and need to be. Um, a lot changed with the corporate killing. It was 2002, I think that came in where the director was dire directors of a company were directly personally responsible if somebody died in the course of work you know had they done something that made the whole thing suddenly become take, taken very very seriously in health and safety management but in a small company you can't necessarily afford a full-time health and safety manager so what you do is work with a, a, a contractor a health and safety specialist who will maybe spend three days five days a quarter making sure that you are operating safely. Similar models beginning to emerge um, for environmental um, specialists. So for example, several of my clients, um, some will just get me in once a year to do the carbon footprint. I say me, this is you know, somebody like me. Um, there's one in particular whom I will be meeting at midday um, to go over their 2022 carbon footprint. Um, she basically will just ring me up with a particular query. What do I do about vehicle managers? You know, what about oh, freight? I've, this is how the software has developed the data collator over the years because a particular client has a particular problem. Can you cope with this? I think, well, no, but we can add that. So I've now added freight miles. So you can calculate the carbon, not just from vehicle movement, but okay, moving a 10 tons of freight, 3,000 miles by sea, and then 250 miles by truck. So you can work out the carbon from that. The numbers are all available. You extend the software, you do it. So she hasn't got the technical background to do that, but she knows a guy who has. So I'm being used as a sort of in loco environmental specialist and they're paying us to do that. So it's the classic make or buy decision for a business. Do you have somebody in house or do you buy chunks of time from somebody who's not in-house, but he's working with you very closely. So a lot of our clients, that's that's what we do. That's how it operates. But the logical next step for businesses, yeah, it's, we're paying consultant rates. We don't charge that. We're actually very, I would say this. <laughs> uh, we probably undercharge and over-deliver, uh, you know, which I'm often taken to task by, for by my colleagues who are much, much more um, business-focused than I am. But there will come a point for a business where they say, actually, we just need somebody in-house to do it. And then you say, well, you know, there's 
she might only be 23, but uh, young Olivia over there is really on top of all this stuff. Maybe she'd like a job offer to do something she's basically wanted to do since she was 12. You know, so, so there is that. That's the sort of shift that I think is going on. Um, the underlying question, I suspect, is, is it happening fast enough to make any difference to anything? I don't know. Mm, that's the tricky one, isn't it? That's because, yeah, yeah. And and really sort of depending which way the wind's blowing and how people are feeling, they'll give you a different answer on a different day. And I think it's, it is a challenge, but it feels like that doesn't really, actually, that's not quite such a pertinent question as I probably thought before this conversation. I think what, what I'm kind of picking up here is that we're not alone. I think oh, that's, that's the, the key message is that if, if you kind of like, if it, maybe you're the sole kind of, you know, sort of driver in your organization, but, but hearing Simon talk here is that, well, one, if you can't get the support internally, there's definitely people like Simon externally who can basically come in and kind of sort of almost stand by your side and guide and facilitate and, and then maybe, you know, sort of, you know, use something like the carbon lens to kind of, you know, really kind of, um, yeah, so give you that evidence to really back up the storytelling that you want to do in your organization. And obviously to an ultimate position where, yeah, you have a, a team whose sole purpose it is, is to, is to drive the narrative and, and you know, do the actions. So it feels like it's, we're actually, we're more probably better supported than I think probably most people would feel. It, well, that yeah, um, that, that's the root of my optimism. I'm described as a relentless optimist. <laughs> you have to be because pessimism is its own self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you, you've got to, you know, it will work. It, this is classic chaos, you know. How will it be all right? I don't know. It's a miracle. It just will. But that's your emergence thing. There are, there are networks emerging quietly within the existing business community that, the inflection point, the tipping point, was the people at the top of business communities twigging that actually this is where the money is. Where do you think the growth is going to be? The growth is the low carbon economy. Now, they have at least recognised that now, which I think is why there's now an energy security and net zero department. There's some, I don't think they understand what it means, but they know something going on. You know, would the minister like to find out what the hell is going on down there? below what we can see well this is what is going on and you look at <laughs> do you know about Hornsea 1, 2 and 3 Hornsea is a small town on the Yorkshire coast we used to play them at rugby there's a big wind farm Hornsea 1 which is Urstead um, um, build the um, the turbines but the mast for the turbines if I get this the right way around the footing that goes into the seabed is built, I think, on Clyde side. The mast are built on T side. The turbine blades are built by Siemens on Humber side. And Altley build the actual electrical, mechanical set, Danish. And Siemens is a, is a German firm, but it's got a lot of activity in the UK. So it's very much part of the infrastructure. That's heavy duty engineering in a high growth area in the poorest parts of Britain that used to be the epicenter of the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> Suddenly, as the North Sea becomes the biggest power station in Europe, because Hornsea 1 is quite small, Hornsea 2 is now under construction. That's a, that's a lot of gigawatts. That's tens of gigawatts of 
energy being generated. You're talking about tens of thousands of, enough energy for tens of thousands of homes from the wind, but it needs quite specialist technique and understanding and technology working in a very rough, shallow sea. Well, would you believe it? We've got all that expertise because of North Sea oil, which can now be reapplied to generating clean energy. Surprise, surprise, the carbon intensity, that is the amount of carbon emitted per kilowatt hour of electricity in the UK grid is falling by the last few years, it's been between eight and 10% per year. So basically there's, there's eight to 10% less carbon emitted for every kilowatt hour that you use in your heater or your cooker or whatever, because of all the renewables. And there's a massive offshore wind uh, farm generation project underway. Eventually there are, the plan is there will be offshore islands that will so that you can duct the, the run the cables to the UK, to the Netherlands, um, uh, Northern Europe, uh, Denmark, whatever. The Danish are very big players in this technology. You know, we have a lot of wind. We can do stuff. This is growth. This is serious, serious economic growth. So that that is a way to run an economy, uh, but you have to invent it and you have to make some dangerous financially bit decisions early on, but they've done that. Um, now, the tragedy behind all this, of course, I lived in Sheffield, I was doing my PhD in neuroscience stuff, brain modeling um, in Sheffield during the miners' strike. The tragedy of what happened to the mining communities, because they were seen as political adversaries, um, was just palpable. You could see it. Um, but the upshot of it is that the UK is not massively dependent on coal to generate power in the way that it was. But there's new employment, new growth, new technology uh, in a much cleaner way of doing it. So anyway, I've had a social science. Um, uh, my son's a historian, I'm not. But, um, you know, the human stories behind this. There's a huge amount of training needed. Uh, for this um, at all levels. But that's a growth opportunity in itself. Um, we've been building tens of thousands of homes um, to a very, frankly, very low environmental standard. Where are the photovoltaic panels that should be on the roof? Where are the heat pumps? Where's the level of insulation that's possible that could have been put in? They're all going to have to be retrofitted. I'm talking to you from um, um, an 18th century Quarryman's Cottage um, between Bath and Bradford and Avon. So we've got eight. Those are 18 inch stone walls. Um, somehow we've got to make this house energy efficient. So there's quite specialist knowledge and manual skills needed to insulate an old property like this. The tragedy is we're going to have to do the same thing on new build houses, which should have been built much better in the first place. But there aren't enough people who are skilled enough to go and do that installation. I'm talking, you know, youngsters, kids going through college. And not theoreticians. There's enough of us around. What, what, use, what use are neuroscientists really? Come on, ask yourself. <laughs> you need a few of them. You don't need many of them. What you need is people who know how to fix stuff, build stuff, attach stuff, assemble stuff. You know, you, British intellectual snobbery is very dangerous. We need to actually value people with those manual skills and we need to train them properly. So there's growth. You've got growth in education, you've got growth in employment, you've got growth in the economy, and it's all low carbon. I rest my case.
Mm, so, so at a very, very local level, I mean, coming almost full circle to kind of where you started, which is kind of, you know, start locally, keep it small, make a difference within your kind of circle of influence. I'm paraphrasing what you said, but I think it is that, you know, the power of this is in your hands and there is a story to tell if it is about growth in the organization that you work with and for says, yeah, yes. But as you said earlier, you know, yes, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the day job, but actually now this can get in the way of the day job because there's something really positive um, that can align I guess with a more commercial strategy and maybe that is the storytelling here you know backed up with yeah. the carbon data to kind of give that that sort of that underlying evidence that feels about right doesn't it yeah I don't know that's a nice place to have it. before long it is the day job and if you're not doing that as your day job somebody else is they're going to outpace you we're going to see a massive, thinking evolutionary biology here, the ones, well, Mike, Mark Carney, um, unlikely green hero, ex-governor of the Bank of England, now UN Special Envoy on Climate, who understands how the financial systems work. A line we use, futurely uses quite often, almost every event, just, just to put things in perspective. Companies that do not adapt to the climate crisis will go bankrupt. You know, he said that it wasn't possibly, it wasn't, and this might happen. This is he's Canadian, so he's much more direct. They won't survive. You, you're going to have to do this. It's the, How long does it take for the realisation to penetrate a mind that's set in a, a world that is now fading? You, you know, to be successful in business, you've got to be thinking, it's like watching snooker players who are thinking eight moves ahead, you know, eight shots ahead. You know, you, you watch them, you think, okay, what's going on in your mind? He's modelling where it is that's that good business management it's fairly obvious the direction of travel um so it is the day job yeah so if somebody is listening to this and they're thinking i need somebody like simon to come in and just give us that clarity because simon talks sense he's making carbon management accessible to me i need to find out more how, how do people contact you the best thing um Carbon Lens is the company. That's the the three of us who do this the speciality stuff. So we work out your carbon footprint. Standard output is a, a net zero plan. Uh, typically, we, do, we want to do that every year. You can do so. That's the, the business thing. If you're really not sure, you just want a bit of background. Uh, contact Future Leap. Um, either of them would come through to me. Um, yeah. Um, I talk too much, but uh, it's all there. It's there. The thing to remember, the take-home message is there's an awful lot going on under the surface. And the other take-home message is it's just fun. I got really sick of green Puritans saying, oh, thou shalt not do anything that's fun. Rubbish. This is more fun than anything else. And you, you meet really interesting people doing this stuff. You know, it's amazing. It's inspiring, actually. So, um, yeah. I can advocate the uh, the Future Leap Network because obviously, I otherwise I would not have met Simon, who's joined me here on this 300th episode of the Neil Wilkins podcast. And here's to the next 300 uh, equally exciting and inspiring uh, episodes. So thank you so much, Simon, for being part of this one. It's been you know, really fascinating. We're both listening to your story, but also, you know, the passion with which you, you know, continue to manage this chaos. And uh, a lot of people, I think, can just learn and embrace that kind of mindset because it's it's infectious. So thank you very much for your time. It's addictive. Be careful. Thanks for asking, Neil. Um, I hope that's been some help to somebody.